If you're kind of new or circulating back to us here, I want you to know we've been, as a church family, studying through the last chapters of the Gospel of John. And we get there this morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 20. So if you'd like to follow along with us this morning, brought your Bibles, and I hope that you will, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 20. The, the book of John is about three-fourths of the way over in the, new, in, the, in the Bible, and it comes right after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I hope that you'll turn there with me this morning. And, and as I said, most of you who are here this morning, you, you know, you, you thought about what you were going to wear today and what you're going to put on, and you look so good, and, and I'm so grateful to be here with you. But for the few moments that we are together this morning, I want us to turn our attention really away from the clothes that we're wearing. I want us to turn our attention to a different set of clothes that the Scriptures tell us about. The, the clothes that I want us to consider this morning were not bright and colorful clothes, they were not the kind of clothes that, that people look forward to wearing and being seen in. The clothes that I want us to consider this morning were far different. As the title of my sermon suggests today, on this Resurrection Sunday, I want us to consider the clothes that Jesus left behind on that first Resurrection Sunday. Specifically, I want us to consider the grave clothes that John describes for us in the first verses of John chapter 20. You know, we often speak about the empty tomb. That's what we talk about. It was an empty tomb. But the, the fact of the matter is that the tomb wasn't entirely empty. These clothes that John tells us about were left behind by Jesus when He resurrected from the dead. And, and these clothes really serve as a testimony. They serve as a witness for us about some very important things that I think we ought to spend some time considering. But before we get there, let me set the context for you by reminding you of what has happened. You see, John tells us about these events that occurred on, on Sunday morning, but two days prior on what Christians refer to as Good Friday, what, what we already recognize is that Jesus was crucified. He was, he was stretched out, His arms and His legs stretched out on a rough wooden cross, and His hands and His feet were nailed onto that cross. And then Jesus was lifted up and and and... During that time of His crucifixion, the Bible tells us that darkness covered the entire land and blotted out the sun. Not, and, and Jesus hung there and He died, not because He had done anything wrong. In fact, He had come under scrutiny by the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate had declared that Jesus was an innocent man, and yet He hung there on the cross and died, primarily and, and as a result of the fact that God had sent Him, His only Son, to come and be a sacrifice for the sins of men, women, boys, and girls just like us. The Bible tells us is that, that Jesus came to become the Passover lamb, the one who was slain for the sins of mankind. And then the Bible goes on in John chapter 19, verse 30, to tell us that when Jesus recognized that His substitutionary work had been completed, He says that He cried out from the cross, It is finished. And then John says, Jesus bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the promised Messiah, died. We then read that in John's testimony in the last verses of chapter 19 that two men came. One man named Joseph of Arimathea, the other named Nicodemus. And they came and they took Jesus' lifeless body down from that cross and they began the process of preparing it for burial. The process would have involved washing the body, anointing it with oil, and then 
wrapping it in strips of linen. And those strips of linen would become our Lord's grave clothes. John goes on to tell us that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and and aloes, about a hundred pounds worth. And the process would have been they would have put a strip of linen around the, the body of Christ and then they would have put some of that mixture of myrrh and aloe on it and then they would have added another layer and then put more myrrh and aloe and then added another layer until Jesus' body had been uh, completely wrapped. And while that's an extraordinary amount of spices that would have shown the fact that, that Jesus was held in high honor. What I want you to know is that that process, though, was the process normally taken by the Jews when they buried the dead. They would wrap their bodies of the dead just like we read about here in these long linen strips, and then they would have applied the spices in order to offset the smell of the body's decomposition. They would then take that body, put it inside a tomb, and they would roll the stone in front of the tomb, and then after a course of a year, after the body had completely decomposed, they would go back and they would collect the bones, and they would put those bones inside an ossuary or inside a bone box. And that box would have contained not only those bones, but the bones of the predecessors who had come before them. And it's that first part, that part of anointing and wrapping the body and anointing it with those aloes and myrrh, that's the part that that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went about to accomplish on Jesus' behalf. The only issue was is that this, this preparation for burial occurred late in the day on Friday. And Friday, it, 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 it was the day, what we call Good Friday, but it was the day before, it was the, day before the, the Jewish Sabbath. And the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath always started at sundown on Friday. And so what we come to recognize is that everything that they wanted to have accomplished by the beginning of the Sabbath had been accomplished. You see, the Jewish law prevented them from doing work on the Sabbath, prevented them from, from touching a dead body on the Sabbath. So there's a ru- they were rushed to do everything that they could for Jesus, which explains why Mary is on her way back to the tomb on Sunday morning. In fact, some of the other Gospels tell us that Mary and some other of the women were going back to the tomb on Sunday morning because they wanted to go and finish all of the preparation of Jesus' body that had not been fully accomplished on Friday afternoon. And that actually brings us up to where our text begins this morning in John chapter 20. It tells us why this one woman that John singles out talking about Mary Magdalene is on her way back to the tomb where Jesus, where she thought that his body was at. Let's pick up there. John chapter 20, verse 1. We read these words. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. 
Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness and your mercy to us. And as Pastor Ted's already prayed this morning, we're thankful for such a beautiful day and the bright sunshine outside and for the glorious time that we've been able to sing songs and praise to you. And Lord, just to be able to see folks, many people that we maybe not have seen in months, if not even a year. We're grateful for that. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to gather in this place and to do so with our Bibles open in front of us, expecting to hear from you. Lord, we do. We expect to hear from your Holy Spirit speaking to us today. You've authored the words that are in front of us that we've already read, and Lord, there's a message there that you want us to to receive. And I pray that you would help us to have an open heart and an open mind as our Bibles are open in front of us to be able to receive that word that you would have us to hear. Let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there's a lot that we could say about a lot of things in this text. We could talk about Mary Magdalene and the deep anxiety and the sorrow that she experienced when she found that stone rolled away. You see, she was not going there expecting to find an empty tomb. She was going there expecting to find the body of Christ, that she could do the work that she had gone there to do. Instead, she finds the stone rolled away from the front of the tomb and she doesn't see the body of Christ. And so that creates a great amount of anxiety in her. And she runs back and she finds Peter and she finds the other disciple that John refers to here. And John always uses that description to refer to himself. He's referring to himself as the disciple. Many times he says the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved one. Or here he talks about it's just the disciple who was with him. And so John is referring to himself here. And so Mary goes back to tell both Peter and John that she believes somebody has come and stolen away the body of Christ. And according to what we, we read here, both Peter and John took off to see this for themselves, just as Mary had reported. I mean, after all, if the body had been stolen, they wanted to be able to lay their eyes on it and see the empty tomb for themselves and find the evidence. So both men ran to the tomb. And, and John makes sure that he lets us know that he outran Peter. I always find that to be interesting. I'm thinking, well, he was younger. He should have outrun him. Now I'm getting to be an old man, and I can't run near as fast as I used to. And if Charlie outruns me, I don't think he's got a lot to brag about because I'm an old man, and he's a young kid, and he can run. And I think that's what happens here. John is saying, look, I outran him. But notice what he says, though. When he got to the tomb, he didn't go into the tomb. You notice that. Instead, John, John gets to the tomb where he knew that Jesus was, and he kneels down to look inside it. In verse 5, we read that after arriving, he stooped down to look to see the, the linen cloths, the grave clothes of Jesus laying there. But Peter, he might be slow, but he's persistent. And he gets there and he's huffing and puffing and just in typical Peter form, he gets there and probably pushes John out of the way and says, get out of here, kid. And he runs down inside the tomb and then he begins to investigate what's going on inside the tomb. Verse 6 says that he also looked at those linen cloths lying there. And then in verse 7 we read that Peter noticed the handkerchief that had been used to wrap around Jesus' head and that it was not lying with the linen cloths, but it was folded together in a place by itself. And then in verse 8 we see that John follows suit. He, 
he then decides to go inside the tomb and he went completely in there and then he took time to actually look and see and investigate and consider those grave clothes that were left behind. Now I point all that out to you this morning because those grave clothes become the central focus of what both John and Peter look at. However, I want you to notice that there is a progression of both sight and insight into this passage that's not readily available for us in our English translations. You see, John in our English translations, we see that, that John says he saw the clothes there and Peter saw the linen cloth lying there and that John saw and believed. But what I want you to know is that in the Greek, there are three different words that are used there. We translate them all as, as to see in English, but they're different in Greek. The first one that we come to is the word blepo. That's the one that's used in verse 5 that says that John saw the cloths lying there. Blepo is a word in Greek that really describes seeing something, glancing at it, noticing it's there, but not really centering your attention on it. It's kind of like what you do at a, at a red light. If you're driving your car and you get to a red light, you see the red light. It causes you to stop. You notice that the red light's there, but you don't just stare at the red light. At least I don't. I look to see what everybody else is doing at the red light at that particular point. And I'm just kind of waiting for the green to show so that I can begin moving on. That's sort of what blepo means. It's just, you know it's there, but you're not really studying it. But then notice what happens next. When Peter arrives at the tomb, he goes inside and John says he saw, but he uses a different word in the Greek there. He uses the word theoreo. We get our word theory or theorize from this same word. It's, the, it's a word that means to investigate something deeply. It's the same kind of understanding of what a detective would do at a crime scene. He's going to go to the crime scene and he's really going to look at everything that has occurred so that he can try to figure out what happened here. That's the word that happens here. That's what Peter did. He went inside and he spent time investigating what he saw. And then finally, we read that John went inside and he saw and then he went on to believe. And the word that John uses there in verse 8 is an even different Greek word. It's the word idon, which means to see something and become aware of its significance. It means to look at something in such a way so as to perceive the importance of what is visible. Now really, I just want to tell you, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to, I want us to consider intently the grave clothes which covered Jesus' body that were left behind in the tomb. And then I want us to, I want us to move from just being observers of those things to actually investigating them. And then by the Lord's help, being able to truly perceive the importance of what that testimony of those grave clothes are for us today. So based upon what we read in this passage, there's some important things that I think these grave clothes give witness to. Well, what are they? Well, the first one that I would point you to is that the grave clothes give witness this way. It's a plain witness. The grave clothes provide for us a plain Witness. There are two questions which these grave clothes really provide us an answer or a plain witness. The first one is this. Contrary to some skeptics who came on later in the first century and into the second century, skeptics who came along and said, well, the reason why Jesus wasn't found in the tomb is because the witnesses, the, the, the disciples and Mary, they all went to the wrong tomb. That's why the tomb was empty. They went to the wrong one. But I want you to know these grave clothes give a plain witness that that's not the case. Not the least of which is we know that John and Mary were at the crucifixion 
We saw that last week in John chapter 19. And we have every reason to believe that they stayed around and watched exactly the tomb that Jesus was placed in. We know from the other gospel accounts that many of the women had stayed around and they saw the specific tomb in which Jesus was laid. So we have no reason to believe that they went to the wrong tomb. But these grave clothes give clear, plain witness that they didn't. Because consider this, if they, if they had stumbled onto any other grave that had not been empty, there would be no clothes to be found. But they found clothes, grave clothes, linen strips that had been left because a body had been in that tomb. They give plain witness to the fact that they did not end up at the wrong tomb. The second thing, though, these grave clothes give witness to is the fact that unlike what Mary thought had happened, Mary believed that someone had come and stolen the body of Christ. Well, these grave clothes provide us a witness that that's not the case. Consider this, if, if someone was going to come and steal the body of Christ, what would they have done? Well, they would have unwrapped all of those strips from Jesus' body and thrown those clothes into the corner and it would have been disheveled and in a state of disarray. Either that would be the case or they would have just lifted Jesus' body fully clothed and stolen him and taken him away and there had been no clothes left at all. But the fact that when they got there, they found these clothes wrapped as they were and laid on the shelf as they were, as if a body had just come out of them, well, that gives indication that this body was not stolen. Something else occurred. So these grave clothes provide a plain witness, a plain witness that they did not end up at the wrong tomb and that something other than a grave robbery had occurred. That's the first thing that I think we should see. But then the second thing I think we ought to notice is that these grave clothes provide us with a powerful Witness, Not just a plain witness, but a powerful witness. I mentioned the hundred pounds of spices that Nicodemus had brought to, the, to anoint Jesus' body. And I also mentioned how that process went, that the strips would be laid on, more of the, the, the wet, uh, moist, uh, kind of a, a, anointment of those oils would have been placed, and then another layer on top of that, another layer, to the point where Jesus would have looked very much when he had been wrapped completely like a mummy. We get a different picture of that earlier in John's Gospel, in John chapter 11, where you remember the man named Lazarus that was Jesus' close friend. He had died. Jesus goes to his grave four days after he had been laying in it. And you might recall that Jesus told him to move the stone from out in front of Lazarus' tomb. And he called him, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says that Lazarus came out of the tomb bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Lazarus looked like a mummy walking and he evidently had a hard time walking because Jesus told some who were right near him, look, go unloose him and let him free. But here in John 20, something different occurs, something even more powerful. You see, when John says that the strips of cloth were lying there, what he is saying is that they were wrapped around Jesus' body. They had, they were looked just like Jesus was in there. Consider the fact that that, that hundred pounds of of aloe and myrrh that was added to those strips, they had had time for them to dry since the Friday afternoon when they had been applied. And so the clothes, very likely, as they laid there on that shelf, probably resembled very much of what would have looked like an encrusted cocoon. It would have, it would have had the outline of a body laying in it, but there was no body inside. Furthermore, that face cloth, which from my study, reveals, reveals that it was a large cloth that was used to be wrapped around the head in order to keep the mouth of the deceased person closed during the process of the body's decomposition. 
Well, when Peter, he investigates what he saw, he saw that napkin or that face cloth taken and folded neatly and left in a position separate from the rest of the other grave clothes. Now, I believe that that empty cocoon of those linen strips, those grave clothes, accompanied by that folded face cloth there, testifies and gives us a very powerful message. I think it tells a very vivid story of a risen Savior who somehow, miraculously, in a way that we cannot fully comprehend, came back to life and passed through those grave clothes and left them just like they had looked when they had been wrapped around His body. Unlike Lazarus, who when he was raised from the dead, came back in the, with the same corporeal physical body that he had had before he died, Jesus demonstrated in his resurrection that he had a completely new body, a body that was not bound by the same laws of physics, not bounded by the same earthly dimensions which he had submitted himself before. It was not that Jesus became a phantom, I'm not saying that Jesus was just a ghost. I'm not saying that somehow or another he didn't have a physical body. No, he did. In fact, we know that he went on, he ate, he drank. I think, I think he, when the sun shone, his body created a shadow on the ground. He was not a phantom or just a spirit. He was raised with a body, but it was a different body. Even though it had all of the same characteristics that we would think a body would have, he still, as we see in John's gospel, could show up in a room that had a locked door and the door had never been opened and suddenly Jesus was there. Jesus had the kind of body that he could be walking with two of his friends along the road to Emmaus and he could get to their house and he could eat with them and he could drink with them and then suddenly Jesus, after he revealed who he was, could be gone. Look, we don't know exactly everything that we would like to know about that, but what we do know about it is that Jesus had a physical body, but it was a body different from the one that he had had before. And all of that points to the power of the resurrected Christ. Even more so, though, I think these grave clothes lying there undisturbed just as they had been proclaimed to the world that everything that Jesus claimed, everything that he preached, everything that he promised was all true. You see, as one writer has put it, from Thursday evening into Friday, the disciples had watched their Lord be arrested, tried, and convicted, and crucified. But now, before them, they had tangible proof that Jesus was alive and well. And I don't want you to miss the powerful nature of that witness. Because... These grave clothes that Jesus left behind validate His claim that He was God of very God. That he was, the, he was the Son of God who came to do exactly what He came to do. And it gives complete understanding that He is the only way to God. He is the only way that sinners like you and I can ever make it to the Father. Those grave clothes to me serve as a very powerful testimony that all who are lost in their sin can run to Jesus and they can find a living Lord who remains a friend of sinners even today. Those empty grave clothes provide for us a very plain witness. They provide a powerful witness and then they also provide us, the third point you'll see there is a promising witness. A number of websites and sermons that I read point to 
the face cloth, as the King James puts it, the napkin that was folded up and laid separately from, from the rest of the grave clothes. John says it was not lying there with the linen cloth, but was folded together and placed by itself. Some have suggested that this goes back to a, a Jewish tradition of, of how the master of the house would eat. And, and that when he would eat, he would, when, he was, when he was done, he would take his, 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 his napkin, his cloth, and he would wad it up and, and, and throw it on the table, and that would signal that he was done eating. I've been taught not to do that at my house, by the way. Um, we, have, we have napkins at our house that are, that are the linen cloth napkins, and Caroline is desperately trying to conform me into some sense of decorum and she's trying desperately hard y'all pray for her it's a hard job for her and I know I know that it is because you know my, my thought I don't know how to do all those things and get the napkin rings back and 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 but nevertheless according to what according to the the, the testimony that many say is that is that that when 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 a man was done with his meal he would wad the napkin up and throw it down but if he was only stepping away temporarily that he would fold the napkin back up and that would signal to his servants that he was coming back now i could not verify that that was an actual jewish custom but i do know this i do know that on the night before jesus was crucified he told his disciples in john chapter 14 i'm going to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. I do know that Jesus planned. He said, if I'm going away, I'm coming back. I also know what the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 4. Beginning in verse 14, he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we're going to believe that God's going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And then Paul says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The Bible teaches that Jesus, he's gone, but he's coming back. And listen, it also teaches us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when that trumpet sounds, the Apostle Paul says in verse 51, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Do you understand? He is saying that when Jesus returns, we who are alive and remain will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be given a body just like that that Christ had. You see the promise that's embedded in this whole story and in this, this evidence of these, these grave clothes that were left behind by our Lord. It tells us that one day Christ will return. And when He returns for us, we will be changed and we will receive bodies just like His. That is a plain witness. It is a powerful witness and it is a promising witness. And the fourth point that I want you to see this morning is that it is a persuasive witness. Those grave clothes that Jesus left behind is a persuasive witness. I mentioned how John uses those three different words in his narrative to show the progression of the sight that he was able to experience, how it went from just noticing something to actually investigating it. And then, then something by the power of God allows him to be able to see the true understanding of how that applies to his own life. And that's really what we saw there in verse 8. He saw 
And he believed. Something changed in John. He was able to move from just looking at it to investigating it to being changed by it. I like, I like what John Stott has put about those grave clothes. He said, Jesus, he said, Jesus, his body was vaporized through them. Uh, he, says, he says it were transmuted into something new and different and wonderful. And he passed right through the grave clothes, leaving them there as a silent but persuasive and convincing witness to the fact that Jesus had risen and that he was alive. Now, verse 9 goes on to tell us that John and Peter and even the rest of the disciples didn't understand everything as of yet. They didn't understand how the Old Testament that prophesied of Jesus' resurrection, how it all dovetailed and put together. But they're on their way. They just didn't understand it all just yet. But John clearly declares that the evidence of the empty tomb and the grave clothes that Jesus left behind convinced him that the Lord had risen and that he was alive. For John, the grave clothes that Jesus left behind were a persuasive witness. The question is, are they for you? You might say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't get to go inside the empty tomb and see them lying there. And even if I were to go there today, there's no grave clothes left there for me to witness and to look at. And all of that's true. You're right. But you do have the persuasive testimony of God's holy word from an eyewitness who was there and saw it for himself and has written this so that you might come to an understanding of it for yourself. You also have the witness of what we receive from the apostle Peter who just a few weeks later wound up finding himself on the streets of Jerusalem loudly proclaiming to all the Jews the the fact that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and that He rose again. You also have the further witness of the rest of the disciples who Jesus appeared to, who then took it upon themselves because they were commissioned by God to go out into the world and they began to proclaim the same good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins and that He rose again on the third day. And here's what you have to understand. All of those disciples gave their lives as a result for their understanding and belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why would men go and be martyred for something that they believed was a hoax that they didn't believe was true why would they Peter for example hung upside down according to Christian history that he was crucified upside down why would someone go to that links and go to that kind of death for something that they didn't believe to be true John saw and he believed because it was a persuasive witness And he goes on to tell us in verse 31 of John chapter 20, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I ask you once again, are you persuaded by the the evidence that is presented that Jesus is alive? I want you to know that every person who is confronted with the empty tomb and the grave clothes that it contained, is forced to make a decision. There's only one of two ways to respond. You either have to accept what the Bible says is true, that Jesus Christ did truly rise from the dead, or you must reject it, convinced that dead men do not rise from the grave. Those are the only two options. But when an honest heart takes the time to scrutinize the evidence, 
and to move past just looking at it with a passive glance and to honestly attempt to understand what the Scriptures reveal, then just as it happened with John and with Peter and with the other disciples and with countless millions across the centuries, you will come to believe that the resurrection is real. And listen, belief in the resurrection is absolutely essential. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty and you're still in your sins. But I want you to know the opposite of that is also the case. If, if Christ is risen, then our preaching is not empty and your faith is not empty. And if Christ is risen, then your atonement has been paid for and you have been forgiven of your sins. And if Christ is risen, then if you've been forgiven of your sins, then you have hope. You have hope that one day you will be in the presence of God Himself and be able to live in eternity with Him and you will have life and life everlasting. And every, if that is your case this morning and that is your testimony, then we have every reason as Christians to be excited today. We have every reason today to be, to celebrate. We have every reason today to go out and look at others and say, He is risen. And let me tell you why that's good news. We have that because we have been forgiven of our sins. That is available to you this morning. You have the option. You either choose to believe what Jesus has said or you reject it. So I ask you, are you persuaded by the promising and the, and the powerful and the plain witness of the grave clothes that Jesus left behind on that first Easter Sunday? Have you believed in Him? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and, with, and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul goes on to say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. It's this, the grave clothes that Jesus left behind Give testimony that He is alive and should lead us to believe in Him as Savior and Lord. Have you done that? I want you to know to have faith in the resurrected Christ is not a blind leap of faith in the dark that's based upon just sheer, just jumping out there. No, it is based upon the evidence, the apostolic witness, the evidence given by credible witnesses who were there and witnessed it themselves. And it also involves turning from your sin, breaking with that sin, and bringing every area of your life under the rightful lordship of Jesus. If you have never done that today, then I invite you, I invite you on the authority of God's written word to come to Christ, to confess your sins, to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ who died for you, and who was risen by the power of God so that you can know for sure that one day you too can have life everlasting in His presence. Brothers and sisters, when we know that we have that, that's what makes us go out in the world. And that's what gives us the sheer joy to look at others and say, He is risen. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank You for what You have done for us that we could never do for ourselves, that You came and gave Your life as an atoning sacrifice for my sin. I could never have atoned for the sins that I have done. But You did because You lived the perfect, sinless, holy life. 
And not only did you give your life through death, but you also have given us life through your resurrected life. You broke the power of death and it no longer has control over us. We no longer have to fear that which we will experience physically because we know that spiritually we have life everlasting because of what you have done. So I thank you for that today. I thank you for the promise and the hope. I thank you for the power of the resurrection. And I thank you for the plain testimony that we've been able to see this morning. Now, by the power of your Holy Spirit working, I pray that you will do in our hearts that which you desire, that you would draw men, women, boys, and girls to you. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.